0: This session is from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Well, I think we'll begin. Good morning to everybody. Um, I hear it's a lot cooler in here than it was yesterday. Uh, they put some fans in and uh, and all of that. Um, great to see you all. I'll introduce myself. My name is Gavin Peacock. I'm a pastor uh, in a church in Calgary, Alberta, in Western Canada, Rocky Mountains, Calvary Grace Church. Um, I'm also the director of international outreach for CBMW. That's the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, Dr. Wayne Grudem is just down The corridor there speaking and of course uh, Wayne Grudem and John Piper all those years ago were instrumental in starting that uh, great uh, organization which has served the church well Um, and I also uh, travel and speak uh, widely uh, on the issues of manhood, womanhood uh, sexuality Um, I've co-authored four books on the topic um, and I just wrote my own uh, biography uh, last year uh, because uh, when I was a lot younger, I was a professional soccer player in the UK, played in the Premier League for Chelsea, uh, Newcastle United and other teams. So I've, my, uh, my biography is called A Greater Glory from pitch, that's the soccer pitch, to pulpit, from pitch <laughs> to pulpit. Um, so I think last year they gave it out. They, they gave it out, didn't they, as a, to everyone? Um, so uh, an evangelistic tool, but hopefully encourages Christians as well. Um, we haven't got a lot of time. I've my uh, title this morning is uh, Building Gender Distinctive Resilient Homes, something to that effect. And as we're talking about Christian ethics and sexuality, this is, uh, this is a massive thing, a massive thing. Let me just read uh, a couple of texts and then we'll, I'll pray briefly and we'll, we'll begin because we only have 45 minutes. So Genesis 1, obviously well-known text. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And then chapter 2 and verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then Ephesians 5, in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, Paul, quoting from Genesis 2, in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together, uh, even before you this morning, uh, we bless your name for you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. I pray this morning that according to your word and by your spirit, you would uh, illumine our hearts uh, and our minds uh, and bend our wills to your will, even as we see Christ in all of his glory through your word and help us to be obedient in our day and age uh, to your design and structure uh, for the family that we may shine like lights in a twisted and crooked generation and point to the gospel in Jesus name. Amen. Well there's a deep homesickness in our homeless generation today. Um, There's an ache isn't there of of not belonging, of not having security, of not having a a sense of place, um, identity. A history and everyone's just swirling around looking for somewhere to anchor themselves. Um, I think to a great degree it's because the idea of the home and the family has been eroded and redefined and so we see a dislocation uh, in society and this has affected the church as the culture has affected the church rather than the church affecting the, the culture What begins in the home bleeds into church life and even affects pastoral leadership. For how a man manages his own household dictates whether he is qualified to lead in the household of God. Fatherhood in the home and pastoral care in the church are parallel activities. When Paul is thinking of church leadership in 1 Timothy 3, he thinks of a father (laughs) in the home. So central to the issue of homelessness is fatherlessness and we have a fatherless generation and so we have fragile homes and we have gender neutral homes that's reflecting a gender neutral society around. I could go on with uh, berating all the things wrong in the culture but I want to get to the meat of the talk this morning. I want to give us a, an offer four theological pillars for building gender distinctive resilient homes. Christian homes. Four theological pillars and then four theological applications for growing those gender-resilient Christian homes. And, and just as an aside, you know, we can get caught up as we look at everything that's going on around and the ideologies and LGBTQ and, and wokeness and, and all of this, and we can tend to focus on the, those things and, and get very down and despairing. But God is working most in the darkest of times. Just look at the cross. And so I see this as as a mission moment for the church because if we get right on these issues and if we're living them out with joy, then we will present a joyful, harmonious, flourishing counterculture to a world that because it's just going against... It's it's anti-wisdom. It's going against God's design. It will implode at some point. And so we will see people becoming increasingly uh, disheartened and disenchanted with those paths that they're taking, and they're, we, we've got to stand firm in the church. We will suffer for it, uh, I'm sure, but, but let's stand firm. So to do that then, we need to know our God, we need to know his word, we need to know our theology and the application. So let's, let's get on with it. Four key theological pillars for building gender-distinctive, resilient homes. The first is the eternal pleasure of the Father in the Son. The eternal pleasure of the Father in the Son. This is pillar number one. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, blessed us in the beloved. That means that that God the Father and God the Son have existed before time began in a familial relationship, father to son, son to father. And Paul tells us further in Ephesians 3 and verse 15 that every family on earth is named after God the Father. So he is then the source of the family. That is where we get our idea of fatherhood and sonship and the Christian family and the home from God, not the other way around. Very important starting foundation. And notice that the son is beloved of the father. In other words, he's the supreme object of the father's love. So that all God's blessings come to us in Christ. He is literally referred to as the son of his love in Colossians 1 verse 13. At his baptism we see the Holy Spirit depend, descend upon Jesus like a dove and then we hear the Father's voice, don't we? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so then this love of the Father for the Son is such that the bounty which Christians receive by being in Christ through faith, having his atoning work applied to us, exists in being caught up in this familiar love and pleasure that exists between the Father and the Father. And the Son, starting off some really light stuff this morning, hey! (laughs) But it's great stuff. This is where we need to get our minds is up there, up there, and 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 this is we are caught up into this love, into this familiar love uh, between the Father and the Son, as Christians. Furthermore, in John 14, we hear that Jesus goes to prepare. A place for us. You remember that that text? He's about to leave his disciples and he's going to prepare a, a place for us in his father's house. That is heaven. And he will return one day to take the church home to be with him. So everyone's sense uh, of homesickness and homelessness and fatherlessness is firstly met by coming home to the father through the son and being swept up into the sphere of the father's love for the son and Jesus promises in John 14 that the father will love us and that he the father and the son will come to us and make their home with us so you see this language of father son and home and us being drawn up so the first theological pillar we need to have in place in order to build gender distinctive resilient homes is that all families find their source in the Father and his eternal love and pleasure in the Son. And all believers, the household of God, are caught up in that such that we experience this love and pleasure as the Father and Son make their home with us. So resilient, gender distinctive Christian homes are built on that pillar and consequently they should be places that reflect the Father's love and pleasure in his son. So that's the the first theological pillar. The second theological pillar is the historical structure of the first human family. The historical structure of the first human family. So the first pillar, if you like, is set in eternity. The second pillar is set in time and history. From before the world began to when the world began. When God birthed the universe, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does it mean to think of God as the father of creation? Well, it means many things, but it means that he is the father of the heavenly lights, James 1, 17. So he's the source of all goodness and the source of a good creation. He births the creation. And the father then in creation after speaking the universe into existence, says, as it were, now as the, as the crown of creation, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. It's as if he says, there's something missing in this home as he creates this universe. There's something missing in this home. And so then the climax of, of Genesis one is man made male and female, made in the image of God, created beings, but with this image and likeness of God. And in the special creation of man, we see the head of the human race appear. That is Adam. And Adam is to work and keep the garden and rule creation. And with this headship, God gives to Adam all the physical and emotional and spiritual resources in his surroundings and all of the natural life around him in the garden. And God says to Adam, he says, you're going to need a helper and she's going to help you extend this rule and she will complement you in all ways. And you see then what you have then is, as God is, is, is structuring this first human family, you see there is an order and a harmony in the whole creation and so what he does is he he generously fashions this woman from the man's rib I often say to to, to guys you know I said guys that like, she is fashioned from the rib of the man we were made from dust of the ground <laughs> <laughs> hey but this is all part of the sameness yet yet difference he brings into existence this beautiful companion she is like him but different to him she is equal uh, and, and yet she's his complement, him firstborn, her secondborn, him the head, her the helper, her from him, for him. And so you see then gender distinctive order is for harmony in this first home, in this first family. But it's also for productivity, it's for harmony, but it's also for productivity because they are to be fruitful and multiply And her first helping task is to bear children in this one flesh union of marriage. Often people think, you know, it's just because Adam was lonely. No, it wasn't because Adam was lonely. He didn't know loneliness. It's because God wanted to bring him this compliment that would help with the creation mission. And that was to spread images of God across the earth. And so in the minds of the first readers of this and in the mind of, of, of the author... Uh, of Genesis and Moses it wouldn't be this you know we can have a bit of a sentimental view of marriage That it's not that marriage isn't for companionship and isn't for emotional needs but this is very functional it's very functional here and, and it is for productivity it's the creation mission productivity in the home spreading these image bearers so that the boundaries of the home spread and the whole world is there filled with the knowledge of God God is the father of Adam, he's the father of Eve, and he brings her to the man at the very first wedding in history. And so you see how God then builds the family, the first home, as it were. And there is some gender distinction in there. So the resilient Christian home, the gender distinctive resilient Christian home, is built on a second theological pillar here. It will be a place then of order and harmony and productivity with these distinctive roles that flow out of creation order. That then links to the third theological pillar, which is the grace and generosity of the Father. The grace and generosity of the Father. God the Father is gracious in creation. He makes Adam and Eve and says, I provide everything for you, all you need and more now enjoy and explore and extend the garden enjoy the beautiful trees enjoy the beautiful fruit you need to notice the language if you, as you read Genesis 2 in Genesis 2 verse 8 every tree is described as pleasant to the sight and good for food you, you hear Adam's uh, words of joy in this poetry when he sees his beautiful wife this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So the first home is a joyful place. Nothing is ugly. It's aesthetically pleasing. It's experientially beautiful. It, will, it engages Adam's senses from trees to his wife. And the father says, enjoy it. And, and we don't see God as generous, lavishly generous as we should he is keen to give he 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 loves to give good it's his joy to give good gifts to his children we we ha- tend to have that feeling deep down that he's holding out on us that yes okay there's mercy for us but there's only a limited amount of mercy and only a limited amount of grace and of course that was the first problem in the garden with Eve as she's deceived by the serpent he gets in her ear and it's like God's holding out of you, on you why shouldn't you take from that that tree. And of course this is the the nature of sin is that we think God isn't so generous to us that we think we then take what we ought not to take because He's not given us all we need. But He's He's lavishly generous. The generosity of the Father, do you see God as a as a generous Father? He's not about spoiling your fun. He's not all about saying no, though he does say no, though there are boundaries. In fact, look at all the yeses he gives to his first children in the garden. Just one no, just not that one tree. So the Father shows this great generosity in creation, but also in redemption. Just look at Ephesians 1, that beautiful passage in Ephesians 1 in verse 6. You have this wonderful presentation of the gospel in Ephesians 1. uh, And then you see how the Father blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing on the basis of his electing love, and he adopts us as sons. Then you have this line in verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. To the praise of his glorious grace, or to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is the high point of it all. This is why God saves us, to showcase his grace, to showcase his lavish generosity, and for us to worship him because of it. God is obviously uh, dismayed, as it were, uh, disappointed with all sin. But one thing that would grieve him most is that we don't see him as gracious as he is, because he is the high point to be praised in the gospel. So the father is a gracious giver. Do a study of the gospel of John see how the word is full of grace and truth to make the character of the Father known. How the Father gives the Son to us. The Father gives us a place in his house. The Father gives us the Spirit. The Father gives us what we ask for in Jesus' name. So his generosity is displayed in creation and redemption. It's interesting when you study the parable of the prodigal son, that seeing God as a, the Father as a gracious giver was the problem for both the sons. It was a problem for both of them. The one that ran off, well, he's not, he's not a gracious giver, I just want to take from him and go, licentiousness. And then the one who stayed and was a legalist, he didn't, he didn't think his father was very gracious at all to him. He said, well, you never made a feast for me. And what does the father say to him? My son, all that I have is yours. See, the problem at root for both the sons was the same problem. They didn't see God, they didn't see the father as a gracious giver. So does the father's grace pervade your home? Does the father's grace pervade your home? That's the third theological pillar in building gender distinctive, resilient home is the grace and generosity of the father. And the fourth theological pillar is a masculine defined home a masculine defined home if the father's grace pervades the home then masculinity should define the home this is the fourth theological pillar god is spirit but he is revealed to us as masculine he is father we are taught to pray to our father in heaven the second person of the Trinity is revealed to us as the son of the father. And he comes to us incarnate as a man, Christ Jesus, not a woman. He is the one mediator between God and man. Adam is the head of creation. Jesus is the second Adam and the head of the new creation, the church. The human race is named man Adam in the Hebrew is named man, not woman, indicating this primacy of masculinity in defining the relationship. That is why traditionally a woman would take her husband's last name. Unfortunately, some women who refuse to take their husband's last name are still stuck with their father's last names. It's an early morning joke for you there. It's a bit of like, you, but it's true, isn't it? I'm not going to take my husband's last name, but you're still stuck with your father's. <laughs> and hey, I know I don't know all the different cultures in the world, so there may be certain cultures where there's some differences here, but certainly in, in, in the cultures that we' have grown up in around here. So now stay with me here, right? Because this could get heavy. Men are not the source of masculinity, but are God's chosen sex to carry the masculine role of husband and father? Men are not the source of masculinity, but are God's chosen sex to carry the masculine role of husband and father, reflecting God as father and Christ as husband. What of women, you say? Are they less important? Not at all. Not at all. They too are called to point to God as father and Christ as husband. How? By the way that they help to affirm their father's role. And by the way, they help to affirm their husband's role, or even as he is a father as well in the home. They are saying, look, this is what God is like. What if they are not married or or never married? Same for a man, never married. Well, unmarried men and unmarried women show a single-minded allegiance to the bridegroom in the corporately feminine role of the church as bride. And unmarried men and unmarried women can all affirm fathers and husbands where appropriate. And all men can be spiritual fathers in the church, which points to the fatherhood of God. And spiritual mothers are called to train younger women to be submissive to their own husbands, thus showing Christ to be a husband worth following. In the way the church respects and submits to their elders. The whole church is pointing to the son, who is the chief shepherd, the chief elder, and the bridegroom of the church, whom the elders are called to imitate. And as the congregation of men and women submit to their elders, they point to the Father in heaven because godly fatherhood in the home is one of the qualifications of an elder in the church. There's a lot in that I've just said there. Um, but I've tr- I'm basically unpacking everything, pointing to the Father and to the Son, so that you see that we're all called to do that in different ways, but all called. To- it's not about, ah, oh, yeah, because I'm a man. ah, oh, yeah, I get that kind of uh, father, you know, and the hu- husband and the bridegroom. No, I'm pointing that way and, and, and my wife is pointing that way and the, all the women are, and men are pointing that way and as the corporate church we're pointing that way it's not pointing to us so the home then is masculine defined and within this both men and women equally though differently in some senses function so it's a place that points like an arrow to the father and the son four theological pillars for gender distinctive resilient homes I'll just go through them quickly again. Number one, the home reflecting the eternal love and pleasure of God the Father and God the Son. Second, the home incorporating the historical structure of the first human family order, harmony, productivity. Third, the home displaying the grace and generosity of the Father. And fourth, the home being masculine defined. Masculine defined. Now we've got four pillars. Now we apply four key theological applications. It's not every application, but some four key ones here. The first key theological application is this. Husband-led marriages and father-led parenting. Husband-led marriages, father-led parenting. In order to build resilient, gender-distinctive homes, we need to recover husband-led marriages and father-led Parenting, We have a problem with uh, headship, male headship in the church, because we gave up on male headship in the home years ago. Recover headship in the family, and you will see the next generation embrace it in the household of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is Ephesians 5:22. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Paul instructs in Ephesians 5 here that the husband's position is head. He doesn't grow into it, though he will hopefully get better at exercising uh, his responsibilities in it. He is positionally the head. He's positionally the head. And she, the wife, is to arrange herself under that headship. His headship, then, is the basis for her submission. So that her submission, and this is key to remember for husbands and wives, her submission is not so much something she does, like, I'm a submitter. It's a posture she adopts. It's a posture she adopts. That's why she can submit in everything, in all areas of life. She is under her husband's headship. It means nothing less than being obedient to him, where it is not sin, and where she is not being called to uh, subject herself to abuse. Those things are clearly not what she, uh, headship is is about it does mean more than this a wife is not always doing what her husband asks sometimes a lot of times she's doing all sorts of things which he hasn't specifically asked her actual task is to be his helper but she does it in a position of submission to his headship so she acts in a manner appropriate to her position functioning as that helper so it's about the position like a position in a team if you like, think of a sports team, playing your right position for order and harmony and fruitfulness. He is head, she respects his headship. She places herself under that headship and note she actively does that. It's not something, she's just a doormat. She just, no, she gives that submission. She, she adopts that posture, she's called to it and she does it willingly because it is as to the Lord thus she affirms a husband-led marriage. What about headship then? What about headship? We see from 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3 that it comes from God and it is not tied to sex and it does not mean inequality. Headship comes from God. It is not tied to sex, gender, and it does not mean inequality. This is what you get hit with all the time now headship means inequality not in the order god is the head of christ christ is the head of man man is the head of woman this is 1 corinthians 11 so god the father sends god the son and then jesus incarnate submits to his father's will in all he does so where do we see headship originate with god with god But Philippians 2 tells us Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, yet obeyed his father all the way to death on the cross. So Jesus is equal with the father, but chooses to submit to his father in his flesh. So headship is from God. It is not tied to sex alone, and it does not mean inequality. It's displayed there in the relationship with Jesus and his father. Yet in this husband-wife relationship, he is her head. And it is this way. Why? Because it reflects the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's not marriage in general he's talking about here but marriage with a Christ-like headship of the husband and a church-like submission of the wife. These are the lines, if you like, that bring definition to the picture. So you've got marriage, the picture, but you need some definition in there. And there's some definition with these lines. I would suggest that we are a generation that has given up on headship in the home. We pay lip service to it at best. And in in a lot of marriages and many marriages that I know that would say, uh, oh, we are complementarian. Yes, we agree with uh, headship and male lead, you know, the man leading and that. They're functionally egalitarian, functionally egalitarian, mirroring the culture around. So we need to return to husband led marriages. Why? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. We must also return to father-led parenting. Husband-led marriages, father-led parenting. Ephesians 6 verse 1 expresses that both parents are the authority over the children. Okay, but, first, but verse 3 tells us fathers must take a lead here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parenting must be father-led. If, if the husband is head of the wife, of course, then they're overall head of the home. It's interesting. Nancy Gibbs, writing in Time magazine, made this observation. She said, from the Reformation until the 1830s, most parenting manuals were written for fathers. How about that? Most parenting manuals were written for fathers. Before this time, society assumed that mothers were assistants to the fathers. It is now assumed that fathers are assistants to the mothers. William Farley, who's written many good books on the family and parenting, notes (laughs) some of the reasons for this. One is the rise of feminism. It rejects parental sex role specialisation and it makes it interchangeable. Now, everything dad can do, mum can do better. Another reason is a general suspicion of authority structures. Another, hopefully I'm going to offend too many here, Another is the homeschool movement. We have a lot of homeschoolers in our church. we probably, I would say, 50-50, so we, we love homeschooling. We're for homeschooling. Um, but what, ha- what happens in homeschooling is mums participate with their children all day in this teaching role. By default, they become the teacher, the disciplinarian, uh, the omnicompetent parent who's on the scene all the time. The role of father then slides to the margin or can do. And the great temptation here is that contemporary fathers, then Christian fathers, they just get passive. And she's just doing it all. And she's, she's competent to do it, right? Probably feeling a great burden. If there's homeschool mums here, I, I know that it's a, it's a very tiring job to do. But passivity, and that was Adam's great sin. He was passive. He was passive. Whatever the school situation most mothers are going to be with the children more than the father in the day. The key is to know this: who bears the ultimate responsibility before God on the last day, God will hold Dad accountable for the parenting process first. He will hold Mum responsible for how she helped him. There are many excellent and well intended books written by Christian mothers for for Christian mothers. But Where is the chapter entitled, How I Worked With My Husband? How I Helped My Husband? See, he's the lead parent, even if she's spending most of the time here. Um, in the Bible, he's the lead, and she assists him. Uh, so so even, just even thinking of a practical example, because wives get on it, right? In terms of reading a lot. In general, women are reading more stuff than, than men. and So I've just said to... to 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 marry couples in in our church. Okay, so your wife's reading. She's read this book on on parenting. Okay, you're still the head. Ask her to tell you what the book's about. Give me an outline of this book. We want to put some of the things into practice here. So you're exercising a headship without having to read every single book. She's loving reading all of the books. She's bringing back the book reports to you, right? But then... But So she's loving it, she's flourishing in that, she's getting the info, but you're, still, you're not passive, you're not detached, yeah, you just get on with it. And tell you what, for a wife, that's a great relief as well, because it does relieve a burden from having that final save, and, and she can lean into you, even as she is exercising her uh, gifts and her, um, her you know, enthusiasm in, in, in the role. So remember this, the fatherhood of God is the overarching theme for the biblical family. And so it needs to be reflected in various spheres. As qualified male elders are like fathers to the congregation in the household of God, as husbands in the home provide that fatherly loving authority, all patterned after the father in heaven. Patricentrism is what Andreas Kostenberger calls it, where the father is the centre of the nuclear home, using loving authority for the benefit of his wife and children and neighbours. The wife is the helper in that task, by his side, under his authority, but still in authority over the children. Order for the sake of health and harmony in the home. If we build on the four theological pillars for resilient, gender distinctive homes, we will return to husband-led marriages and father-led parenting, which is the first application. The second application. Confidence in life-giving authority that must be exercised. Confidence in life-giving authority. If we return to husbands and fathers leading, we must also regain confidence in life-giving authority that must be exercised. That's the second theological application. Many husbands and fathers have abdicated their responsibility to exercise their God-given headship in their home because of sin, laziness, neglect. Some have never been taught about it, never shown how to do it. Many are simply afraid to exercise it. The culture is telling guys here all men are potential abusers that's what the culture is telling you the culture is telling you masculinity is toxic I said masculinity isn't toxic sin is toxic proper masculinity is actually the antidote to much of the toxicity we see in the culture today and the culture is telling you authority is dangerous authority structures are dangerous women are inherently just victims of male oppression Behind it all is even an unspoken idea that women are more moral than men. Now, even though we recognise that some men and some women do abuse and some men and some women are toxic, men are often guilty until proven innocent. And so you see what the problem is. Men shrink back now in fear. You can't even sit properly on a public transport. Because men's legs come out to the side. It's, is it called mansplaining or something like that? They call it. No, men are being told to contract. Yeah? Oh, put your legs together. you know, you've got to sit. You've got to withdraw. Men in the workplace are afraid to approach women in the workplace, even in a secular sense, to approach them, to maybe uh, ask them for a date or something, because they're afraid of being co- uh, cause a, a, a sexual harasser. And so the natural dance of between the sexes is... It is being crushed and men are actually shrinking back in fear. Who wants to be accused of being an abuser when you try and take initiative or exercise authority or assume the role? Or if you do try, you can only do it the way the culture prescribes, which is basically to emasculate men and reduce them to tame puppy dogs who follow women around on a leash. So we must gain confidence in right authority to use it and submit to it. As I say this, we need to admit abuse happens and we need to come down on it hard. But just because abuse happens, it doesn't mean that we don't use right authority. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't exercise proper restraints and proper even investigations. Um, in the workplace or in the church as is needed. Absolutely, that's right. Um, But what happens is when we tend to focus on that, then we think all authority structure is wrong. But no, we need to regain confidence in life-giving authority. Headship, then, is an assumption of loving responsibility which sacrificially protects and provides in order to give life loving responsibility which sacrificially protects and provides in order to give life husbands love your wives how As christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that's what your headship looks like so headship contains authority which flows through the loving sacrifice of responsibility headship's not about being the boss it's about being the sacrificer that's what headship's about think of it like that Now, a man can never be the sacrifice in the same way Christ was. Christ alone atones for sin. Christ is our substitute in the sense of being the sin bearer. But also in the sense of being our representative. Christ represents us. And so in Adam, our old head, all are dead. In Christ, our new head, all are alive. So a husband has this representative sense over his wife. This is important for husbands to remember. The husband is not guilty for his wife's sin, but he is overall responsible for her and the marriage. It didn't matter that Eve was out there taking centre stage and sinning, most obviously. God calls Adam to account first. He is her representative head. God deals with Eve, but God makes Adam first responsible. And so, men, we need to assume that responsibility in the way we sacrifice for our wives and recognize that we have that overall responsibility for the marriage. That's why in marriage counseling, in my church, it doesn't matter if the couple come to me and she's about to run out that door, I'll say to the man, what's happening in your home first? I want him to assume that responsibility or even give me an overview of what's going on because somewhere along the line, the balance has gone wrong. This is what masculinity is, taking responsibility, sacrificing to provide and protect life. That is how the father and son display masculinity, which means that a man who abdicates his responsibility as head of his home is actually being effeminate. If your wife will not respond to your headship, sit down with her, prayerfully and patiently explain from the Bible God's purposes for the home and how she is to help you as head on that mission. Finally, if you're called to be head, then show an example, men, of what it is to submit to right authority. If you are a man who does not or did not submit to his father's headship well, or a boss in the workplace, or your elders in government, you probably got a problem with authority and you won't exercise authority well yourself. Good heads submit themselves to appropriate headship well. Second theological application for gender-distinctive resilient homes is regaining confidence in life-giving authority. Third application, and I've got to move quick here because we've only got a few minutes, is practice the imitation game. That's the third imitation, the imitation game. With the four theological pillars in place, the first two applications apply to resilient gender-distinctive Christian homes now becomes a place where imitation can take place because we learn well not only by instruction by imitation also Paul's way of life is worth imitating so he tells people imitate me as I imitate Christ sometimes we're a bit afraid or too polite to say it but no I want men to imitate me as I imitate Christ so I said come you know I want to imprint on them By virtue of being a father and affirming father-led parenting, you are very faintly imitating God the Father for your children. By being a husband and a wife who imitate Christ in the church, you are both speaking the gospel of Christ to your children. And then children, as they see mum and dad acting in gender-specific ways, can imitate you. Oh, that is what a man is supposed to be like. Oh, that is what a woman is supposed to be like. Oh, that is how a, a man is supposed to dress like daddy. That is how a woman is supposed to dress like mommy. And there is a difference between the two. And it is right and it is good because there is harmony and order and productivity in the home. Children then learn what it is to be a biblical man or woman and how that's challenged, channeled to being a husband, father, wife and mother. Raise your kids to be hus- uh, husbands and fathers and wives and mothers. It's not even on the radar of 15 year olds today. What do you want to be when you're older? I want to be a soccer player. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. They all say, ah, but when does a young man say, I, I want to go get me a wife and have some children and a family or a, a, a woman? I'd love a husband. I'd love to bring up the next generation uh, uh, of Christians in this world. You know? They, they imitate what they see. They aim for marriage. And so you see then how important maleness and femaleness is. It is tied to massive gospel related realities. And it's where our children then find their identity and purpose as young men and women. Finally, that's the third application I could go on. But fi- finally, the fourth uh, theological application for these gender resilient homes is the families as little churches. When you have resilient homes that a husband and father led, exercising authority for the good of the family, a sphere of imitation, then that fourth and final application can take place. These homes become little churches. I put the little churches and put it in quotes because it's not the church. The church is the bigger family, the household of God, but it does not negate the nuclear home. And resilient gender distinctive Uh, Homes will be places where the husband disciples his wife and mothers and fathers evangelise and disciple their children and fathers take a lead in instruction and discipline. And by their example in portraying Christ and the church, marriage shows people who come to the home for hospitality that Christ is a bridegroom worth being wed to and that in this human earthly father one can see a faint, Reflection of the loving authority of the heavenly father who welcomes the outcast, who is father to the fatherless. And so your home shows the gospel, the gospel welcome of the father through the son in the hospitality that you show in this home. Thomas Manton once said, the Puritans said, a family is the seminary of the church. He says by family discipline, officers are chained up for the church. So think of it like this today's homes contain tomorrow's pastors. Today's homes contain tomorrow's church and tomorrow's workforce. Today's homes contain tomorrow's missionaries. And one of the best ways to resist the tyranny of the devil and the advance and promote the advance of the kingdom is to build gender distinctive, resilient homes. According to God's design, the increase in the influence of that home is then foundational to the spread of the gospel and the reformation of society. I'm going to finish there. I could <laughs> go on. <laughs> I hope it wasn't too much of a high oh. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.